We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Get my feet up. Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? About four or five times more work than what we anticipated, and the pilot's eyes are completely locked on the nearly frozen orbit. So in that baby light, there's no doubt about it. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you are listening to episode 82 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now. Jiminy Tin with John Young and Michael Collins, Part 3. We left off last time after the Jiminy Tin rendezvoused with the Jiminy 8 Agena, and Michael Collins was beginning his second EVA. We will start with a clip of NASA spokesman Paul Haney describing what Mike Collins is supposed to do first on his spacewalk. emerged from the spacecraft at dawn. Like Gene Cernan on Gemini 9A, he found that all tasks took longer than he expected, but he was able to retrieve the package from the exterior of his capsule. Next he moved to the Gemini adapter section to attach his zip gun to the nitrogen fuel supply. Then Collins returned to the cockpit area and held on while John Young moved the spacecraft to within two meters of the Gemini 8 Agena. Portions of this spacewalk were conducted over areas of the Earth where the crew was out of contact with the ground, so we have to rely more heavily on the descriptions of what was happening from Paul Haney. This is Gemini Control Houston. We're 48 hours, 52 minutes into the flight. We estimate now that Mike Collins has been outside about 10 minutes, and this should carry him, him through his first 
first two sequences. They include the recovery of the micrometeorite package on the adapter of Gemini 10. He also should have checked out the flow of his uh, little hand maneuvering unit. The next period from roughly 10 minutes to 30 minutes elapsed time in the EVA called for him to move over to the Agena to recover that micrometeorite package. And uh, this should occur during the period of Hawaii acquisition. Hawaii will acquire at uh, 49 minutes, 49 hours and one minute elapsed time. That's about eight minutes from now. Collins pushed off from the Gemini spacecraft, floated freely in space, and grasped the outer lip of the docking cone on the Agena. As he clutched at the experiment package, he wished for handholds, or more hands. Cernan had warned him that it would be difficult, and it was. He soon lost his grip on the smooth lip and drifted away from the package and the Agena. He had to decide quickly whether to pull on the umbilical that was coiling around like a snake or to use the handheld zip gun. Being about five meters away from the spacecraft, Collins chose the gun. It worked, and he propelled himself first to the spacecraft and then back to the Agena using a series of short bursts. This time, he clung to wire bundles and struts behind the adapter and grasped the S-10 experiment package. Collins was supposed to attach a replacement device in its place, but he abandoned this idea, fearing he would lose the package he had already just picked up. Using the umbilical, he pulled himself hand over hand, back to the cockpit, and gave the S-10 package to Young. Here's Paul Haney with an update. Hawaii acquired right on the, on the second. PM contact with the Gemini. No voice contact as yet. Two things are being watched very carefully during the EVA. Of course, any, any new eye irritation that cropped up in the EVA of yesterday of that yet, and we had done during the EVA prep exercise earlier this afternoon. The other thing is the fuel consumption. We uh, feel it's close but adequate. And we're, uh, we're monitoring for any uh, new conversation developing over Hawaii. We've had none as yet. So far, the umbilical had been buckled so it would extend only six meters. Collins now unsnapped the buckle and released the remaining nine meters of cord with the intention of more thoroughly evaluating the performance of the zip gun. But before the gun play could begin, concerns with fuel conservation preempted it. Here's a clip from Mike Collins talking to Capcom. Is, is a big impediment. I was I could hang on, but I couldn't get around to the other side, which is where I wanted to get around. 
gave a brief report on the EVA thus far and relayed that he had lost his Hasselblad camera. Then Hawaii Capcom told John Young they did not want any more fuel used for station keeping with the Agena, and that meant that the EVA had to end early. With the capsule now out of radio contact again, Paul Haney gives us an update. Getting back into the spacecraft was surprisingly difficult. Collins had gotten himself tangled in the umbilical. Since the pressurized suit made it difficult to see or feel just where the line had wrapped itself around him, he had to wait while Young helped him unwind himself and got back into the seat. But fuel remained the big question. Houston called them, just to confirm that they were not using any fuel, and Young replied, We've got everything shut off. More was shut off than he realized. He soon discovered that the radio transmitter had been turned off. 
By this time, Collins was back in his seat. Young reported that hatch closing had been easy. Now here's another update from Paul Haney, and if you listen closely, you can tell he is getting a little irritated about the crew not responding to Capcom. Dean has put in a call, and uh, let's see what the situation is on board. accidentally turned off the radio transmitter.
working to get that the chest pack. Uh, we're not just sure of what else, whether Mike jettisoned the handheld unit before he came back in or, or just what the status of it and several items is, but these will be bound up in a ball and will be thrown overboard in a little less than an hour from now. Currently in the Gemini capsule, the long umbilical cord was coiling all over the cabin. Young thought it made the snake house at the zoo look like a Sunday school picnic. A little over an hour later, the crew reopened the hatch and tossed out the chest pack and umbilical. This operation only took three minutes. McDonald had done an excellent job on this right-hand hatch. Due to the time spent struggling with the umbilical, Collins and Young had to hurry to get set up for an important maneuver that would make the point of re-entry more precise. They carried out an orbit shaping activity exactly on time at T plus 51 hours 38 minutes. This retrograde firing of 30 meters per second brought the spacecraft perigee down 106 kilometers making the orbital parameters safe for re-entry. After another round of experiments, this time synoptic terrain and weather photographs taken as the spacecraft drifted through space, the crew began their third sleep period. After waking up from their sleep period on homecoming day, Young and Collins spent more time on experiments and did their packing. Then, 70 hours and 10 minutes after liftoff, the crew felt the first retro rocket at night as they passed over the Canton Island tracking station during their 43rd orbit. Re-entry went remarkably well, with Young steering bank angles by computer solutions and landing in the western Atlantic at T-plus 70 hours and 46 minutes. That was... 4.07 p.m. July 21, 1966. The splashdown was only 5.4 kilometers from the target point. The crew of the primary vessel, which was the Guadalcanal, watched the spacecraft hit the water. Once the swimmers had attached the flotation collar and positioned the raft, Young and Collins climbed out. They were lifted by helicopter to the deck of the recovery ship. Now here's a clip of John Young speaking immediately after arriving on the deck of the carrier. With the manned portion of the mission completed, the flight controllers put the Gemini 10 Agena through its paces. Over a 12-hour period, the main engine was fired twice and the small engine once. Since the first maneuver was intended to study temperatures at higher altitudes, the controllers sent the Agena up to a 1,390 by 385 kilometer orbit. 
They watched it for almost seven hours and found that the temperature varied little from those at lower levels. The vehicle was then returned to a circular orbit of 352 kilometers that would make it available as an alternative target for later flights. Gemini 9A and 10 had successfully grappled with some of the specific needs of the Apollo program, acquiring operational experience while fostering healthy debates between the two programs on procedures and equipment. Perhaps the greatest benefit to Apollo was the demonstration and practice of several types of rendezvous. Each provided a wealth of information. In addition, the orbit shaping maneuvers to the higher altitudes established that the trapped radiation hazards could be avoided on trips into deep space. Then, too, the very fact that one space-borne vehicle could meet another, latch onto it, and use it as kind of a space tug offered many possibilities for such spaceflight concepts as shuttles, space stations, and space laboratories. Of course, there had been problems, but missions 9A and 10 had logged a combined total of 3 hours and 41 minutes open hatch experience. Although the extravehicular hiatus between the 4th and ninth flights adversely affected both equipment and operational development, Cernan and Collins had shown that tasks outside the spacecraft were feasible. They found that all chores took longer than foreseen and that body positioning was difficult. During technical debriefings, each extravehicular pilot had pointed out the need for more and better restraints and handholds. These aids were being developed. Overall, perhaps extravehicular activity remained Gemini's greatest problem. It was and is dangerous, difficult, and deceptive, despite its delights. The ninth and tenth flight also took several steps forward in experiment performance. Despite operational constraints usually brought on by limited fuel resources, each situation had been modified to wring the utmost from specific experiments. More and more, principal investigators were being brought in to help with modifications and to assist in rescheduling their task for later in the missions if necessary. These real-time flight changes could not have been carried out in an unmanned flight and would not have been done on an earlier Gemini mission. So, in Gemini 9A and 10, the experiments program began to achieve maturity. By the end of Gemini 10, most of the men and women who had worked full-time on the program had begun to have a strong feeling of anticlimax and to wonder about their next jobs. Some had already gone on to other fields, but Charles Matthews tried to control this exodus and hold enough together to finish the flights. Shortly after 9A, he told his staff that the Gemini program office as such would not be continued. 
the people would be absorbed into other MSC activities, mainly Apollo and Apollo applications. By early August, a personnel placement committee had begun work. It soon arranged four to six interviews for each of the 193 project office people. This move helped allay any immediate fears, but Matthew still warned his staff to refrain from making personal contacts for new jobs until the committee could complete its arrangements. There were two more flights in the Gemini program, but it already seemed to be heading into history. Thanks for listening to this archive episode of the Space Rocket History Podcast. If you are financially able, please support the podcast by going to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and clicking on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks.